Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an incredible entrepreneur, impresario, philanthropist, and a best-selling author. Uh, we know him today as the founder and CEO of an incredible place, City Winery, which we're going to talk about. But his career, very much a work in progress, is much more than that. So, Michael Dorf, we are thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be uh, on Great Minds. I hope I don't disappoint on the mind side. You, you will not. You will not. So, Michael, I want to go back and I want to start in your home of Wisconsin and uh, the great city of Milwaukee. And there's a wonderful history of entrepreneurs that come out of that city. And uh, I'd love to get your perspective on those early days, why Milwaukee seems to be such a fertile ground for entrepreneurs who leave a footprint all over the world. And a guy like you founding your first major club, the Knitting Factory in 86 at a very young age, I got to think that you worked as a teenager and that some of that started younger than 23. Can we talk about Milwaukee and about sort of the formative years of Michael Dorf? I'm happy to, you know, I like nothing more than talking about me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, look at, uh, everyone recognizes that it was all the cheese we ate um, in in Wisconsin that that did something, and it was a, the special pasteurized craft done in the '60s that you put with Miracle Whip and Wonder Bread together, and it it just did something weird to our synapses. Um, it was like you know LSD or something. Um, but yeah, I I, I, I look at I, I don't. I don't even see Milwaukee as any different from any other Midwestern suburban setting. Um, I was in the white privileged Jewish suburbs north of Milwaukee um, with with mostly people like me. Um, my exposure to um, you know uh, people of color and 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 outside was was very limited, you know, when I was younger. Um, I did, I feel I did get a little bit of a special experience having gone to a, a, a camp in Northern Wisconsin that the counselors were basically, you know, three, four years, five years older than me, but basically were true hippies that came out of Madison, Wisconsin, which you know, in the 60s wasn't, was truly a liberal bastion. Um, and, uh, you know, an aspiring Haight-Ashbury, you know, Greenwich Village, but in Madison, it was a little pocket. But, you know, when I look back at camp and, and think that all my counselors had long hair, ripped jeans, tie-dye shirts, they were all taking LSD, you know, when they woke up in the morning to take care of us little kids. And, you know, over the loud system in the morning, we'd wake up to Bob Dylan, everybody must get stoned. So like that truly was a formative influence, of course, along with parents and all that kind of stuff. But that was a big piece for me. I, I, I actually think my summer camp for 10 years straight um, was, was really part of what 
is in my DNA and made me grow up. Um, my grandfather was uh, uh, started a, a food selling business in Wisconsin, a, a cookie distribution company. So he was always a salesperson. Um, and I started selling stuff early. I sold a beer can collection at a flea market. That then led to um, realizing that this flea market, you could sell almost anything. If I could sell rusty beer cans, you know, I, certainly I could sell what my dad, who followed my grandfather eventually into the cookie business, you know, I'd sell packaged cookies at this flea market at three packages for a dollar. Um, and so at, at noon on the first day of trying this new thing, um, I uh, hadn't sold any cookies. And I had to put a dime in the telephone and called my dad who had to, because I was 14, he had to pick me up in a station wagon with 30 cases of cookies. And he was like, really, you haven't sold any son? This was your great idea. Um, and I was like, well, I, I'm so, really apologize, but um, we broke, we sat on a case as our chair and it's broken. And he's like, just, you know, sell those for whatever you can. I don't want to bring back broken cookies to, to the warehouse. And so I started selling these broken cookies and, and I was sort of hawking them and going like broken cookies, freshly broken. We just broke them. They're now five for a dollar, not three for a dollar. They're the same cookie. They just, they're broken. And so we sold all the packages of cookies. And then my friend Todd and I, you know, we broke the rest of the cookies that we brought 29 cases and sold them all at five for a dollar. So when my dad picked me up four hours later, he, we had no cookies left. And he said, I thought you said you hadn't sold the cookies. And I said, no, we sold them all. They, they just, they all happened to break Dad. I'm really sorry. We sold them at five for a dollar. And, um, and that then led the next week to my dad basically driving me there again, but this time filled with a car filled with all the damaged product from the warehouse that had, you know, basically they were going to return. So we just brought broken goods to this flea market. And by the time I was 16, I was driving a truck, you know, and then I had my cousins driving a truck. So, you know, by the time I was 18, I was making thousands of dollars net every weekend selling, you know, broken, broken goods. But, um, you know, I, I, what I really wanted to do was, was be an architect. And, and so what I started doing was I was designing some rec rooms, you know, basements for my, some of my parents' friends simultaneous was selling, you know, broken cookies. And I'd go in with a clipboard and I'd say, all right, well, maybe we should put a wet bar there and we'll put the paneling on the wall there and drop ceiling. And they'd be like, how much? I go $3,500 and they'd be fine. And so I did six of those, you know, in my high school days. And then I applied to Washington University in St. Louis. And I wanted to be in the architecture program. And I sat in an interview and I brought them this guidebook. They didn't care about the broken cookie stuff for this, but I brought this, this um, my, my portfolio with the hand-drawn plan of a rec room and then the photos of these. And the interviewer said, um, so let me get this straight. You." Um, you charged people to build this in their home, electric, uh, plumbing, uh, ceiling, the whole, I'd be like, yeah, and here they are, Isn't, aren't they beautiful? You like the way I put the wet bar there? And then they go, 
And so people paid you money to do this in their home. And I was like, yeah, I did six of them. And they're like, we really recommend um, you consider applying to the business school, uh, not the you know architecture program. And I, I was deflated, but happy to to get into WashU and and uh, so I've always kind of wanted to be an architect. And on, and just fast forwarding now, I I I I do all the design work for all the city wineries. I I you know have a certified architect who works with me who you know, does the technical things, but when it comes to the layout and the design and the vibe and the, and truly the way the customer will interact with our space um, from the front door to the stage, et cetera, you know, that's, that's me. And I, I love doing it. And, and I love that part of my job today. Well, you have a very keen eye. Great, great stories, Michael. So you go to Wash U in St. Louis, a great school, you start the knitting factory in 86, I think at the age of 23. What happened in between graduation and knitting factory? It was only, it was a year I traveled in Europe. Um, I, I lived in Barcelona for most of it, um, but then, you know, went a lot of places, but, um, you know, Barcelona, talk about a hotbed of creative artists and, you know, whether it's from Picasso to, to gaudy architecture, um, just incredible stuff, Salvador Dali, it all came from, you know, um, the Catalan culture around Barcelona. Um, and anyway, I loved it. My friends were in a band called Swamp Thing and they were in Madison, Wisconsin. And I had, I was in Europe and, and they reached out to me and said, hey, would you come back, you know, and, and manage us? And, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be in the arts. I kind of figured that out. I wasn't sure what. Um, I was, you know, taking notes in my journal. I thought what I wanted to do was open a cafe called Expressoism. Um, and the idea, you know, I says it all. Um, I still kind of want to use that word, Expressoism, but um, uh, never did. And so I was thinking about that, and they're like, come manage us. So, um, not knowing how I was going to pay the bills, I applied to law school in Wisconsin, and my parents were so thrilled. You know, here I was, um, I was not sure what I was going to do in Europe, and I wanted to do this thing called expressoism. And they were like, "Oh, you'll go to law school. We'll pay for law school." Go, you know. And so I went back to Madison. And I started managing these guys from Madison, and um, I started getting them gigs on the East Coast and across the country. Um, and we're hustling, put out their first record and basically, you know, realized I got to be in New York. And so I applied to NYU Law School and tried to transfer. And I said, if I get in, I'll go to school in New York too. If not, I'm going to New York anyways. And I didn't get in, which is maybe the best thing that ever happened. And, uh, you know, now I pay a lot of lawyers, a lot of money, which bothers the hell out of me, but whatever. And, um, uh, you know, and I, basically tried to run the record company and the business around the band from an apartment on 10th street and was failing miserably. Um, and really was going to have to go back to Milwaukee and start selling broken cookies again. That was the serious fallback plan for a minute there. 
And I found this old Avon office on Houston Street and convinced the landlord to let me, you know, put on shows and do some stuff there. And again, I, I thought maybe this is going to be expressoism. And, um, but it, it quickly changed the name to Fire Escape because there was a big fire escape out the front window. But then a week before opening, after doing some renovation to the space, um, my friends all, much smarter than me, said, um, uh, you know, in New York, maybe the name Fire Escape is not the greatest name for a, a music venue, a club. And, um, and so then I borrowed a, a phrase from the band that I was managing, Second Record, that they were going to call Mr. Bloodstein's Knitting Factory. Um, they ended up calling the record A Cow Comes True, but I borrowed the knitting factory and, and it opened and, you know, and then the floodgates really opened. I mean, because I had come from booking bands in other venues and working and getting the band gigs at CBGB's and the pyramid and, and really a lot of venues. Um, I knew all the deals in town. And so when I opened the knitting factory, I just had a very simple fair deal. It was 75, 25. 75% 75 of money goes to the artist, 25 to the house. And if it was 10 people who paid 10 bucks, the band made $75. If a hundred people, you know, they're going to make 750. And so, and, you know, and I, you know, was, was super clean about it. Um, and, and so the word spread that there was some dude from Wisconsin who was so wet behind the ears that, you know, he, he, he didn't know what he was doing and he's just giving away 75% of the gate for free, you know, and, and, uh, so um, actually I'm thinking about that expression now that I'm, I'm woke, it's a terrible expression, you know, it's a, but I was, I was a naive immigrant um, to New York who really um, was just trying to be honest about the deal and, and that the word spread. And so all of a sudden people from the jazz community, from the rock community and everything that wasn't fitting into a, a, a the right space, like the Village Vanguard or CBS, they all started coming to, 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 to the knitting factory. And I loved all kinds of music. I couldn't be definitive on one style over another. And so we were able to really be a, a catch-all for all kinds of great music. You create this incredible space, it takes off. And very quickly, you start creating festivals and you go international, Holland, other places. You're still a pretty young guy when all this is happening. Absolutely. Um, but you know, when uh, the big Dutch newspaper, the Volkskrant um, sends you a note, um, it, you know, they're like the New York Times of Holland and, and, and they do a big piece on, 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 on the knitting factory and they're calling us the, the, like the, 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 the whole scene of new music in New York. Um, and then a festival reaches out to you and says, will you book us? You know, I, I, I was I, absolutely. And, and, and we got so much attention that was created over there that, um, I, you know, and men, many musicians had been earning a living in Europe, especially in the more avant-garde world. And so, you know, we, I would go over there with suitcases of CDs and sell them for 30 guilders or 30 Deutschmarks, which, you know, converted to about $20. I'd bring 200, 300 CDs over for a weekend 
where we'd have artists play in a museum or what have you, and then come back with $6,000, $8,000 in cash. And that's how I paid our bills for a couple of years, you know? So, um, you know, it was a real scramble early on to, to uh, you know, to make it work in New York. So I know you've had a lot of fabulous artists and some magical nights. I read a great story about Prince showing up years later at about 3 a.m. and playing for give or take three hours, which I want to talk about. But go back to those early days. You're clearly passionate about music. When you reflect on that first part of your career, were there particular nights or shows or artists that you really remember most fondly? I mean, first of all, I wish I could remember half of the nights um, uh, back between 87 and 95. But um, they were, there was so much special music that was coming out of there. Um, so many artists that I, 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 I look back now and go, boy, I wish I, I mean, I wish I had videotaped more. I wish I had actually connected more with the, the person who was on stage more. Um, there so many, so many special things. You know, for me, I was enamored um, with, with two kind of Johns. They were both one, one guy named John Lurie, um, who was uh, kind of an independent movie guy um, was, was in Stranger Than Paradise that I had seen um, not before coming to New York and, and thought the Lounge Lizards was this super cool hip, um, you know, group. And so I worked hard to get them to come in and like us and they did. And, and that was, those were fun. They were just really, really magical shows. And then almost the exact opposite spectrum from celebrity-driven jazz to the most um, most sort of cerebral integrity-focused jazz was John Zorn. And, you know, to watch John as a composer, creator, and conceiver go be so prolific and do all these different things and, and, and watch that process, that was always just unbelievably fascinating to me. Um, really just, he's a, he's a true genius. He's a MacArthur award winner. And, 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 and it's just, that was very special. I would say, you know, from the, the great blue chip jazz people that we had come in there, Cecil Taylor and Henry Threadgill and, and Ornette Coleman, you know, that those were just magical and incredible. Hi, we'd like to introduce John Zorn's Naked City. Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of pissed off that he didn't ask us to join his downtown super. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but I guess we can only have so many guitar players in my band. Drums. Sax players. Thank you. Here they are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
back show and the early indigo girls and you know a lot of sonic youth and they might be giants and that that stuff was was just great i would say the cap for me at the knitting factory was was the relationship with lou reed and all of the lou reed shows we did um, at the knitting factory on on leonard street and the relationship that developed with with him and laurie anderson it was just that was 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 super powerful and the shows were just so great and and he epitomized and the two of them as a couple really the consummate new yorkers um they would always go out to dinner they they his work was was the grit and the texture of new york and 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 it, it just to, with with my relationship with him i was i was already like seven eight years of some level of maturity into the knitting factory. And I recognized, you know, the, the, the greatness and tried to soak it all in around him. Fabulous. And, and Michael, you were early and arguably are America's foremost pioneer in understanding that sweet spot between the rise of digital and the human connection and passion we all have for live. And I think all of us are seeing, you know, now after this, you know, 13, 14 months of, you know, pause that was imposed on all of our lives, just how important it is to all of us to get back to life, to that human connection, to be in the room with other people, to experience things together. But talk about your early sort of understanding of the role that digital would play. And let's talk about some of the pluses and, and some of the minuses. Well, M Matt, first of all, that's very generous. Well, I, th I think it's true though, Michael. I think it really is true. We, we do all, we have a crack research team here at Great Minds and, you know, you were working with companies like Apple and Intel and MCI and, and Bell Atlantic, and, you know, very early on uh, and saw things kind of first. Yeah. Well, I do feel lucky to have been in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, on some level, necessity breeds invention. Um, and early on with the knit, you know, I had to, as we talked about, go to Europe to sell CDs. And we, I had an office in Amsterdam for 10 years because we had so much business in Europe, almost more than in America. Um, so getting the music to be bought and, and owned by people outside of um, New York was, was, was part of the learning to be a media uh, company. And so when the early concept of, of having a website and the ability to connect with people 
simultaneously all over the globe was was being discussed in Wired magazine and played with in certain ways. Um, it was a very uh, exciting uh, opportunity to 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 not have to, you know, which I had always been trying to get my band a big gig in the record company and and the you know I had to end up doing it independently, and to be able to have you know those those barriers to entry to getting stuff on the radio to getting the music out to the world completely squashed was unbelievably compelling to me as an entrepreneur to go wow i can do a complete end around and get to to a customer in europe to get to a customer in holland and so yeah we played and around with this as much as we could and and the big brands you know initially apple you know uh this was pre-jobs return so they were still a very very small computer company or intel took over their sponsorship of a festival we did and mci was helping us like create these 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 experimental shows uh between different locations and real networks um i mean we we we, we needed the technology companies help and financial support but we had the content and then me as a small player i had the relationship with the artists and in many cases had relationship with the intellectual property rights so if i was their record company i might also be their publisher at the knitting factory so i i was able to sign on the dotted line for all kinds of things and as long as i was making some artists money with the gigs you know i was able to really convince musicians to 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 play with us so um we were able to be a, a an early player and experimenter because all the ingredients were were really right there and had a lot of fun um we you know we we were doing things when there was you know no fast internet it was all 7800 baud and then it went to 14.4 baud rate i mean we're talking about two or three screen you know slides per minute like really slow herky-jerky um uh what would be you wouldn't even call it video it was just a little bit of broken up audio with with some slides but it was the early early days and um look at i i, I wouldn't it, it was painful and and fun and an experiment i wouldn't trade a thing um, and it, it, it moved pretty quickly. The trades were always pointing to, to a much um, bigger, quicker adaptation, uh, adoption, I should say, of, of, of fat pipe, of, of broadband. And so um, that fueled the entire bubble of money because everyone's business plan was showing so many eyeballs, you know, participating in the business. And that led to the 2000 you know, internet bubble because everyone was thinking it was going to happen faster and we'd figure out the solutions. It's only now that we're, you know, able to do what we're doing over broadband. Um, but we're talking that we could be having our interactive, you know, uh, meetings back in, in 99. We talked about it in theory. It just the technology wasn't, wasn't there. So let's stay here for a little while while we're here on the subject. In your book, Indulge Your Senses, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, a best-selling book, I might add, um, you're, you're very articulate in talking about 
uh, where digital fits in context with, again, that human need to be together, that passion uh, that we have for live. Now that the promise of technology has arrived and what you know, early soothsayers like yourself saw was possible, but wasn't yet possible, now it's all happening. And the world is changing in a dramatic, dramatic way. There used to be something which I'm sure rings a bell with you, Moore's Law. Yeah, of course. About the pace of change. And we change way faster than what Gordon Moss Moore saw way back when. What's your take on where we are now? And uh, I think the live in context with the amount of time we spend with our faces buried in our phones and iPads and everything else is only more important. What's your take on that? Well, my take is, is that now too. I, and I, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, you know, to, at the start of the pandemic, so my book, by the way, best-selling for, you know, the way the algorithms work on Amazon, it was only 15 seconds of being best-selling. But um, anyways. Listen, I went to Emory. I had eight semesters. I made Dean's List once. But on my resume, when I graduated, it did say Dean's List. So thank you. <laughs> so anyways, but what I was going to you know, say was, you know, at the, the, it came out a few months before the pandemic. And the thesis, you know, of, of, of the book ultimately is that we need the human connection and that, you know, we're so sick of screens and, and the digital. Um, then the pandemic hit. And I'm like, and we're all jumping on Zoom and the world is, you know, there are shows on Zoom and, you know, funerals on Zoom and all the life experiences that, that we did in the gathering spaces are now all being digitized and, and we've figured out a, a solution short term, but maybe then for almost in some cases long term, um, but, but we figured out the solution of, of people connecting together. And there were people going, is this the death of New York? Is this the death of, you know, gatherings? Is this the... and, and there was about two months at the start of the pandemic in March and April, you know, a couple months into my book promotion where I'm like, oh, all right, my thesis is completely, you know, wrong. Um, I'm going to have to write part two of the book, you know, and, 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 and talk about it. But as we got more into the pandemic as it stretched out and as we got sick of Zooms and absolutely tearing our hair out over, you know, the only way you could connect to your favorite band is through a stream. And even they are complaining about it in the beginning of their stream going, I'm sick of playing to a camera. And, and, you know, you know, we all are so exhausted by, by spending even more time now in front of our, our laptop and the screen, that I think the premise of the book actually has proved itself out even more, that there's, there's, there's more evidence of, of the need for the human connection, of the need for taking a window of time away from the screen and, and relishing in the ability to indulge your senses. And that could be a, a massage, it can be a yoga class. It could be a great walk in the woods. It can be a dinner, um, you know, it, with the family going to a great restaurant. Or the ultimate in indulging one senses is where you're playing with every sensory component, 
your smell, taste, sight, eyes, feel, and you can can add the 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 added layer of live music or live art entertainment around you know food and wine and friends and the touch of whether it's the hand of a partner or the texture of a wooden table um, and and having then the emotional connection to the live art that's happening on the stage that cannot be replicated you know on a screen no matter how good it gets um, no matter moore's law 15 years from now and the whole interactive thing with you know goggles and where you're really feeling part of it and even them sending smells and stuff through our you know like really going it's still you know a facsimile it's not the real thing and i think the human body the human part of our soul knows that and connects to the the and and feels the need to connect to 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 fellows in a, in a room so i feel the book is actually even more um more on than a, than in the pandemic demonstrated it yeah, I think it was almost inadvertently even more prescient than you imagined. Yeah, although it's it's uh, I'm still trying to sell it. It's hard to sell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's uh, uh, and and I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, uh, this morning uh, I have an exercise bicycle at home. The identical exercise bicycle is in the classes, the Soul Cycle classes. Yeah, I can stay home in the morning and ride that bicycle for the same amount of time. And I imagine the health benefits are the same as if I'm in the class. But I, you know, was up this morning at 440 to be in the car, you know, a little bit later to park at 630 to take a 7 a.m. class live at Hudson Yards, because there's something about that experience of doing it communally with other people that sensorially is very different. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And in music in particular, it's, it's even more prominent when you go through your, we're about the same age, I'm 56. And when you go back through your, your own life in your own mind, you know, and you think of the, think of your history, you know, I know for me, and I imagine for you, a lot of that history and the things I remember most fondly and most prominently, or, you know, seeing Bob Dylan with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the band open for the Grateful Dead in Buffalo right. and seeing, you know, the first shows I ever saw the Blues Brothers at Red Rocks and 38 special with the Joe Perry project. My parents, I think, thought I was at someone's house in Queens, but I was really a 38 special and the Joe Perry project. And you remember all those things forever. They are indelible and and you know, you hear the song, you know, in some context and your, your mind is going back to that live experience. And, and the same with smells to your point about saying, you know, sense this, there's a, there's a memory of, of senses that extends to all of them, I think. So I, I love the book and I, and I highly recommend it. And we will gladly help you promote it because a lot more people should read it. So let's jump now to the late nineties and a glass of Montrachet okay. and a light bulb goes off. Well, um, you know, I always look at, I, I think ultimately I'm a lush. I like a lot of different alcohol, both the flavors and the, and the buzz and the social element. Um, but I was on a, a, uh, a targeted wine 
trip to to you know the Burgundy country, and with my wife and and uh, you know we I had hotel reservation at the one hotel in in Pouligny, um, and and then that hotel had the only working restaurant then. This is you know um, you know uh, twenty five years ago. It's got there've been more now, but um, and and somehow tasting this great white wine, um, of which, you know, I had good white wines, but nothing like this. And of course I, you know, stumbled into some great reds over the years, but, you know, and, and always thought reds were, you know, just the most, you know, way better, way more expensive. They're, they're, they're the ones James Bond, you know, would go to, but, but having this Grand Cru white Burgundy with, a meal in the right in that setting just the, the the combination there it was sublime and truly bells did go off and i was like i i can't believe anything can be so good and and taste so good with food this is this is unlike anything I've, i i know i i i don't know i i i'm i'm speechless I, I can't even articulate it today like that feeling of this is so special and at that moment, and, and part of it was due to the age, it, you know, it was maybe a 15 year old um, white wine and it just was perfect. And so that, at that moment, I'm like, all right, I, I need to, I need to collect wine, you know, and, 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 and you know, and being value conscious, um, you know, I, I understood that, you know, if I bought a new bottle of the same white burgundy today, you know, at $35, maybe it will get to, $350, 12 years from now, if it's stored right, and I pick the right producer, and I, you know, learn a little bit more, the difference of the gradations of, 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 you know, in particular in Burgundy, and so, you know, I was, in, I, I'm like, this is cool, it's infinite amount of knowledge, you got to learn, and if you get it right, you know, there's, there's, there's a banking component to it, and finance, and there's, there's, it's the ultimate craft beverage and just everything became clear. Like, this is so fascinating. I want to, I'm diving deep in, I'm going to start a seller. I got to, you know, I, I'm not, I don't come from wealth. So, you know, I'm, I need to think of it as a value proposition. I'm going to get $35 bottles of wine. I'm going to store them and hope they get to 300 and someday I'll get a couple of hundred dollar bottles. And if they get to a thousand, great. And, you know, that's how I looked at it. And then I'll just, you know, talk my way into tasting, you know, uh, a Harlan or a Screaming Eagle one way or another, you know, that's how I'm going to have to do it, which by the way, I, you know, I continue this day, love talking my way into, you know, those kind of tastings. And um, so anyways, that, that was the start. I just, that, that was it. I was going to collect, but the sort of the epiphany around city winery and, and wanting to make wine took it to another level. So I started collecting and I, you know, collected a bit. And again, more from a, more of a pauper's collection of wine than, than a, you know, a wealthy collector. Um, and fast forward 20 years later, getting a chance to actually make some wine and, and understand, you know, the process even more changed for me, you know, like, obviously my trajectory and, and that I wanted to be 
you know, I, I understood now the importance of the agricultural side to winemaking, not just picking the right producer and, and the, what goes into it and how that affects the flavor. And, and, and just, I, I, I was like, that's it. I, in, in 2004, when I got a chance to make a barrel of wine at Ridge Winery, that was it. That's when the bells and whistles really fireworks went off. I'm like, I got to make wine for the rest of my life. So let's go back to the beginning of City Winery. And uh, I know you're all over now. The expansion plans continue. We're going to talk about your new place on the pier, which is just absolutely spectacular. But go back to the very beginning, the very first. And let's talk about Varick Street. You know, had the idea was able, luckily in 2003, you know, I left the knitting factory and, and um, I never made any real money, but I, I, I uh, was able to start exploring and figuring out what I wanted to do. And you know, the great thing of starting a second company is you get to fix some of the things you didn't do the first time. And so one of the things in that three, four year window in, in developing a business plan and, and thinking about it is I wanted to be cash flow positive, you know, right away. I was gonna need other people's money and I wanted to be respectful of, of getting a return on investment for, for, for people. Um, my nickname here in the office is Ibedorf. And so, um, you know, I do focus on cash flow and, and, and making profit. Um, even if it's small, I just think it's important. Um, I knew I couldn't do this alone. And, and you know, I, I wanted to make wine, but I don't know how to make wine. So I need a fantastic winemaker. Um, I still don't know what goes into, you know, a great Manhattan or, you know, some drinks. So I need a really good operating team that can actually, you know, run a kitchen and bars. Um, and, and so the people was going to be the most critical component. So in thinking through how I was going to do a, you know, business part two, well, the, I, that basic idea of city winery, you know, let's put on shows, let's make wine, let's have a restaurant. Great. But really how to do it and how to execute on it. That's what got me super excited in having a second chance to, to really develop the, the model. I, I knew I wanted to be a company that was going to give back. That was a big part of the DNA, the, the core values. And so, you know, having that time between the two businesses and then eventually, you know, opening in 2008 was a great chance to really prioritize what, what, what is this going to look like? You know, what, how am I going to accomplish it? And, and, and kind of live by that outline and, and really work towards it. So it was critical to have a great team. And, and so how, did, how was I going to get that team to all feel like they're owners and they're, they're, we share DNA and we're all going in lockstep towards, towards that same direction. And, and, and um, so, you know, all of those things really came together in, 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 in the plan in 2008. Um, and not only did you create a vision for something completely new, but I'll use the word that you just used, you executed on that vision. There are lots of people who have good ideas, uh, but you, you've done it. Uh, and uh, it, it's an incredible place that you've created. We went to your old place many, many times. I've yet to see a show in the new place. We've been there a few times on site visits 
and uh, you know, for Advertising Week, we will absolutely, you know, love to do something at the New City Winery. But uh, that execution, ha- have you kept your team for a long time? Have you just been able to find the right people at the right time? As the leader and manager and visionary, how have you found those experts and kept them on your team? You know, it's a lot of work to, to keep them on the team, especially, you know, especially we're, we're, there are more lucrative gigs out there. Um, and so, you know, how to create a, a life work balance where the work you know feels so satisfying that maybe the monetary part of the compensation isn't the most important thing that the whole gestalt of of the work that it's fulfilling and that it is meaningful and that you're you're doing something you know for the planet whether that's on the environmental side or just the daily putting on a show and make bringing joy to people's lives that sometimes needs to be pointed out as a currency that we're giving to our to as pay to to our staff and that's not an easy sell and so there's a little bit of touchy-feely conversation around that um i think the most important thing i did the most important tool um was was uh you know i had friends who worked in banking and and big advertising that agency and they would always do a company offsite. And I always thought that this was a cool idea. Many of them called them retreats. And, and I was like, I don't understand the word retreat. Retreat is going backwards. It's, it's not the, we're advancing forward. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're, so I, I, um, right away in year one, we did our first company offsite and we called it base camp. And I liked Basecamp because Basecamp to me, one, I being a kind of a, I guess a, now a retired mountaineer, but I, I love, you know, doing the technical ascents. And a Basecamp is a perch where you, you, you survey the, the peak that you want to climb. You look at the, the mission that you want to get to and you do it from a place of safety and you do it with your team that you're next day going to go and you're going to accomplish that goal and you you look at the weak links inside your group because that weak link on the on the rope team is going to kill you all so what you what do you do to make sure that that person is either supported or or cut but you you've got to manage the entire team the whole team has to be going in sync to that goal so base camp to me became the perfect metaphor for what we were trying to do and we've been doing base camp every year. We took a break, obviously, during COVID, but we've we've been able to go somewhere. Luckily, we've had American Airlines as a company sponsor for seven years. And so we've gone, you know, to different places. And there's also been a, you know, and we do some of the typical team building and, you know, work towards our, our what you know, review of our mission statement. And we do group best practices. I mean, we do all of that together, which is important. Um, but there's also a, a, an annual, you know, review of our DNA. There's an annual, you know, either bringing in an outside speaker to, to, to look at our company from a different lens. I used to like, you know, one year we had a big Apple year and I wanted, you know, how would Steve Jobs look at what we do? And then I did it from a film 
perspective? How would a film director look at what we do? And, you know, you know, Hard Rock Cafe year, and every year we have a different kind of, you know, analysis. And we've also had a give back. Um, you know, one of the most poignant years we did was, you know, after the hurricane, uh, it was a Katrina devastated um, Puerto Rico, um, Maria. Um, we we uh, actually three months later we instead of not going to Puerto Rico we went to Puerto Rico and the entire year or the, that the year the three days we were there was all about helping the farmers in the in the in the agricultural community in the middle of the island and we actually in the end built a stage on one of the tree farms that the whole community came so we worked crazily for 24 hours building the stage. And we had shipped down there a big Meyer sound system and generators and lights, and then brought a um, New York-based Puerto Rican music band to come down. And we had about 200 farmers and us, 150 city winery people. Tons of wine was drunk, and we celebrated. And because I had been told on a reconnaissance trip I had taken a few weeks before, going, the most important thing we could bring to the island wasn't more chainsaws and money, and that's important too, but could we do something to bring joy to these people who have been hit every year, losing their electrical grid, losing people, um, and uh, to put on a show and have people dance and smile and be together was the most powerful thing we could do. And we, it was just unbelievably great. And, and, and yet what it did for my own team selfishly. Um, I like to say film, you know, you, you can look at philanthropy very selfishly. Um, I, I wrote a thing even called selfish philanthropy because, you know, while you're, you're doing things for others, a lot of times you're doing stuff for yourself. And in this case, it brought our team together in a way that was so bonded. But, you know, how easy it is for us to, to give a free dinner package to the school that's holding the auction, right? You know, it's, it's nothing for us. And if a hundred schools in New York ask us for a dinner package, we're happy to give it to all of them because, you know, we get branding and they give us, you know, a little marketing value of being in it. It's no brainer. And so there's a little selfishness, but it's best philanthropy and easy to do. So I don't know. I, I, anyway, I, 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 Strongly, I'm behind selfish philanthropy. It's, it's an easy one. And ultimately, it helps the world out. And um, anyways, that's part of our company DNA. And it's reflected in our, our, our annual um, off-site base camp. And I do think that that has created a, a special bond, certainly between the, the, you know, the national and higher level management team. Um, we've got people who've been with the company since the day we founded it, you know, some of my top executives. And, and I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think I can get rid of them anymore. And uh, they, um, hopefully they, you know, they spread the word. I know when a, when a new manager gets involved in the company, um, they somehow drop hints like, Hey, uh, my, my, Am I going to go to base camp? You know, am I getting an invite to base camp? So I know it, it, it means something um, very powerful. Fantastic, as it should mean something. So you have a quintessential New York story. Uh, and I assume by now all the litigation is passed, but you, you've 
commit a pretty large sum of money to renovate your old property. Your landlord's Trinity Church, one of the biggest landowners in New York, not widely known. And you get a phone call, an email, a letter that says, sorry, Bob, I know you just signed a new lease. You're out. Give us what you can of that story. And I know it all ends well, but that must have been a uh, shock to the system, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, we had a um, demolition clause in the lease with with Trinity Real Estate. So we we went into our lease, you know, 13 years ago when I opened with our eyes open. We had a very good relationship with 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 our landlord Trinity. Um, I even made some sacramental wine with a rector, um, um, and that's that's another long story. But you know, had had a good relationship. Um, we knew that eventually, you know, they had the rights to demo, but they always we had a good open relationship. Um, and they told us that we would be given a couple of year notice, even though the written lease said one year, 12 months, um, we were told we'd be given at least two years, maybe three years, certain things would have to happen in the neighborhood in order for them to do it. And so the shocker was when we got, you know, notice that it was gonna be one year and that we weren't then gonna be dealing with, with Trinity anymore. We had to deal with our new landlord, Disney. And, you know, I was like, so who, who at Disney? And they're like, good luck. You know, so they, they knew um, they were uh, really in the wrong in terms of the non-written, more ethical side of our relationship. We had just expanded into the second floor. We had invested a lot of money. Now, we played hardball with Disney and, 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 and I, you know, I signed paperwork. You know, I can't say anything negative and and actually disney in reality was very generous and 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 sort of supportive of the dilemma that we were in which was we thought we were going to have more time and and they needed to start construction so they they actually paid us a decent amount of money to guarantee we would leave after a year um and so they were up they were professional an upstanding, you know, uh, and I actually have very, even besides our paperwork, nothing negative um, really about Disney. My frustration was with Trinity Church. And so when we went back to Trinity and said, hey, you know, we put in all this money and we, you know, when you have a handshake with the church, you don't expect a church to screw you, you know, you, you know, somebody's got to be, um, uh, uh, um, sort of respectful of a higher power, you know, and you think if it's not the church and, and they just, they weren't, you know, I, I've said it many times in the, like in the media, it was like the church wasn't a mensch. It, they were a ruthless cutthroat real estate, you know, company that I, I just was surprised. So we sued them. It was the only, you know, time I've been a plaintiff in a, in any kind of legal action. And, uh, you know, we sued them for what we thought we were entitled to, several million dollars um, around the money we had put into the space. And uh, during COVID, you know, as we had to bob and weave to survive, and I was selling air rights and historic tax credits and anything that could move, um, uh, we also settled, you know, for, a, you know, a much smaller 
some, you know, but we needed every bit of cash we could to survive through the pandemic. A, a quintessential New York story. And you do find a new location. Tell us about that journey and where we are now at City Winery in New York. I want to talk about your expansion plans around the country, but talk about the new place on the west on the west side. Absolutely. You know, so we I've been looking at this building, you know, the marine and sanitation um, building for for the whole time I've been in New York. I I I, I love great buildings and this I've always love this building. I snuck into it about six years ago, about four years ago, a developer named Young Wu was going to do something here, but it's a huge project. It needed $250 million just to recreate the, the, the sort of, there's no foundation, but the components of the pier to restore it, to, to allow for tenants to, to take it over. And so they, they, um, Young Wu ended up partnering with with RXR. And so the, the property is all part of the Hudson River Park Trust, which is a partnership between the state and the city. And they control the whole lower uh, west side, if you will, from the battleship Intrepid down to Battery Park. And we're their tenants at Pier 26 with, with City Vineyard. And they actually recommended us, City Winery, to, to RXR because RXR was pretty far down the road and had had made a deal with Google to be the main tenant in this building. But they needed um, a community um, uh, and market concept for the remaining space, um, which was part of the negotiation that RxR did with with both HRPT and, and the community. And um, so it was a no-brainer for me. I looked still at another hundred properties to consider moving into because this was pretty pricey still, and it was a lot of renovation work. Um, but it was the perfect space without columns. I mean, it's very hard to find big open space in New York City without columns. Um, I've taken columns out everywhere in in my life now with City Winery. Most expensive column removal was in Atlanta. It was $350,000 to remove one concrete column, but we had to, you know, or else the space wouldn't work. And, you know, when you look at it, it's like $350,000 to remove a column is a lot, and you can do a lot with structural steel, but sometimes you just got to bite the bullet. Anyways, this place didn't have that, so it was one of those dream come true spaces, and we eventually cut the deal. Um, you know, we, we left Varick Street on August 5th, of of 2019 we moved our winery equipment and our kitchen equipment upstate new york to city winery hudson valley which was a property we had already bought and were had had plans to turn into a production facility knowing that we were going to continue to sell wine at yankee stadium and rockefeller center and hopefully keep selling more and more wine i mean that's our business making wine in the middle of New York City in this expensive real estate really wasn't making any sense as we're growing. So we knew we needed to get a bigger production facility somewhere out of town. And so we had luckily started that project so that on August 5th was our deadline to move out of Varick Street that we had with Disney. And otherwise we would have lost almost all the agreed money they were paying us. 
So we moved everything out by semi-truck to our Hudson Valley location and understand global warming has sped up the harvest of grapes. So it used to be middle September was the first grapes coming out of California. Now it's the end of August, literally in the 13 years we've been in existence, three weeks faster because of the warmth of the planet um, in terms of the grape harvest. So I had no, we, we needed to have a 2019 vintage or else I wouldn't have wine to sell, not only in our future city winery home, but everywhere else we're selling wine. So the concrete dried upstate, luckily we brought our winery equipment in, we set up the winery as quick as we could and we received our first grapes the end of August up, upstate. Meanwhile, our, our sound system and tables and chairs went to Philadelphia where we were about to open in the fall of 2019, Philadelphia. So we were able to move everything out of Varick Street in literally two to three days. It was an incredible coordinated, but it went either to Philadelphia or to Hudson Valley. Um, and then we were in construction at that point here, um, but we knew we weren't gonna be able to open until the end of March of 2020. You know, now we look at March, 2020 and all we can think of is the start of the pandemic. But in the August of 2019, that was our target opening. We had booked an incredible show on, on March 28th um, with my dear friend, Rita Houston, who sadly is no longer with us, but she, she had cancer and she knew she wasn't gonna live much past summer to fall of 2020. And she's like, my, and she's a great DJ at WFUV. And she said, Michael, I wanna do a show and I want to celebrate my life. I, I really don't want you doing a, a show when I'm gone. I want to be there for the party. You know, it's unfair for all of us who die of cancer to miss our party. Like, so, you know, I want to be there. So she and some of her friends booked the most incredible night that was going to be a benefit for the TJ Martell Foundation that does cancer research on March 28th. And we had booked Mumford and Sons and the Indigo Girls and and Brandy Carlisle and Mavis Staples. I mean, it was the most off the hook, great show, which was gonna be our first show here. Um, and we were had our pedal to the metal on overtime with the union in January and just pushing to get open for this date. And um, of course, middle February, we're starting to understand more about what's going on in China and, and little the our older audience demographic a little more reluctant to to fly and to to commit to spending a thousand dollars for this one event and you know that's coming up and maybe i'm not going to go out and then obviously within a few weeks it all unraveled but we had after this great opening we would have had the entire month of april of 2020 was book solid sold out um, we had you know weddings on the book for for the spring and in the fall and obviously it all it all went away um and like everybody we thought it was going to be a hiccup of a couple of months and we'd be back and and it wasn't and look we are a very lucky company and have supporters and and you know we own a couple of our other properties and so we could work with our lenders and you know again as i said i, I sold historic tax credits and i sold air rights and we did everything we could 
to, you know, have initial capital to get through the, the shock of the beginning and then, you know, some success with PPP and the federal relief money. And, and we sold a lot of wine. We moved very quickly from wine by the glass, you know, that was in stainless steel kegs to a lot of wine by the bottle. And we were doing home delivery and by the case. And we, 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 we started our wine club and got aggressive on, on really, you know, reaching consumers at home. And we did everything we could to, to get through it. And we, we did, and we're alive today. And I, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, a lot of smart decisions and a tenacious team and, and people willing to, to work when they weren't getting paid, um, you know, we, we survived. Incredible story. You, you open at exactly the same time the entire world shuts down. Uh, beyond the emotional and financial turmoil, uh, you know, uh, that takes a toll on someone. Now, the opposites. Look at, look at my hairline. It's terrible. Listen, you still got some. You look pretty good to me. So talk about the other side of the coin, which is what it must feel like now to come to your place and see the house full. I know you've had an incredible run. What did you tell me? It was 37 shows with John Mulaney. Yeah. Uh, talk about the joy and how exciting it must be to see your vision come to fruition and give us a little insight into what's ahead for Michael Dorf. It's hard to describe the emotional sense of having gotten through the trauma of the pandemic you know, perfectly. But April 2nd of this year, you know, and there, we, you know, we, we did fits and starts in between with trying to do indoor dining and this and that. But April 2nd, when Governor Cuomo allowed us to have 100 person live music again, we were one of the first in New York to, to jump on doing live shows again. And, and we've been every single night, we haven't missed a beat. And we, probably will, I hope for the next 25 years of our lease, never be closed. Um, that's our business model. There's no reason to ever be closed. And I think there's so much demand for what we offer that, you know, on Yom Kippur, we'll be doing, you know, some, some really great Muslim programming. And on Christmas, we'll do our big Jewish, you know, comedy shows. And we can always be open um, because there's so much diversity and interesting people in New York. That isn't the case in every market, but New York is, is special. But to see the ecosystem of live entertainment go from you know, being completely dead to starting, and even with a 100-person show and 100 people paying $25, you know, it was only $2,500. So in the words of my grandfather, it's bupkis. But, um, it was something. And to be sharing that in our formula with the artists and the fans, you know, paying to come and eat and get our staff employed and getting this machine going again, you know, it, it, it it's emotional right now talking about it. It, 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 you know, it was, it was bringing this, this ecosystem back um, in the most profound way and and the artists recognize it and my staff recognized it and 
and the audience recognizes it. I still tonight, I will, you know, we're, we're, we're been open now almost three months of live shows. And I will say from the stage tonight for Judy Collins, you know, thank you all for getting vaccinated and helping, you know, rebuild the ecosystem of live music in New York. I kind of use the same phrase. And I get a big, giant clapping ovation. Um, it's people feel it. They're, 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 they, they, they know what we're doing is important and that it reverberates and keeps going. There are still a lot of clubs not open in New York. There's still a lot of restaurants not open. Um, so we're, we're the, hopefully we were the tip of the true tip of the iceberg and now the icebergs emerging out of the water a bit, but you know, we're part of the rebuilding of New York and it feels fucking great. And, um, and I'm very proud of what we've done and, 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 and where we keep going. And I, I, okay, I think the city winery model makes a lot of sense. You start getting some advantages with scale. Um, you know, we can book an artist, you know, in all of our locations and we can start buying toilet paper at a cheaper rate because we're going to all our locations. And there are so many little things in between the greatest artists and toilet paper that, that true economies of scale. Um, now some things don't, but, but the old business school definition of some savings happens with scale. And, and since the couple of 900 pound gorillas in my business, namely Live Nation and AEG, don't want to get into the 300 person level concert space, especially with the level of hospitality we bring to it with food and, and beverage. Um, this is a, it's a wide open space in this, in this world. It's not just this country, this entire globe and coming at it with being really the only chain of entertainment venues at our size, we have the entire world to, to grow. So, um, I'm excited. You know, we just bought a building in Detroit, um, which uh, is a beautiful building. And, I, you know, I'm, you know, I, I feel the last 15 months has been defense. And now I get to play offense really hard again. And that's very exciting. Fantastic. Uh, well, this was a joy to talk to you. Real pleasure. Real pleasure.